everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Infinite Worlds podcast. I'm your host, Winston Ward, publisher of Infinite Worlds magazine. As always, I'm joined by my co-host, Nick the Tooth. What's going on, Nick? Dude, what's going on, man? It is, uh, for posterity, we never do this, but it is August uh, 24th, 2021, and... uh, Happy birthday. Was yesterday your birthday? Yeah, yesterday yesterday was a thanks, dude. I appreciate it. Yeah, yesterday was my birthday. I turned 22. Um, <laughs> <laughs> finally, you know. No, I, I turned 38 years old. I was born in 83. Wow. Getting up there, getting pretty close to 40 now, but didn't really feel any different. You made it. You yeah, made, made it, it to 38. Did you ever think you would make it to 38? I think every year since I was uh, like 10, I'm like, wow, I actually made it another year. Well, I'll tell you what, when I was in my 20s, I didn't think I'd make it to 38. Definitely not. But now, like, I'm seeing people that are in their 70s, and I'm like, you know, that person's 75. And I'm like, oh, dude, if I live to be 75, I have like a whole nother whole lifetime still. (laughs) It's true. It's so true. I'm like, oh, cool. (laughs) So That's awesome. So anyways, that kind of brings up, if you were born in 83, Mm -hmm. then you would have been uh, five, what, six years old for our current topic, which is close encounters of the third kind. Did, uh, when did you, uh, when did you first see this? Okay. So I saw close encounters uh, of the third kind when I was probably, I don't know, five or six or so for the first time. It was one of the movies that my family owned on VHS when I was growing up. So I got to watch it quite a few times as a kid. And you could watch it as a kid. I remember when um, when it first came out, I was super young and I remember seeing like the trailers and it was it, it, although it's a, it's such a kid's movie, you know, and we'll talk about that. There's so many awesome things about this movie, but it is kind of a kid's movie. But at the same time, it's kind of a scary kid's movie. Oh, for I sure. remember seeing the trailer and just being like, oh. Oh my gosh, that's going to be terrifying, you know? Yeah, definitely not as terrifying as some of the trailers make it out to see because there's a lot of silliness in it. But that's the deal. You know, it's a Steven Spielberg movie. So Spielberg, especially in his non-Academy Award movies, you know, the movies that aren't the serious drama, like period pieces that he makes, you know, he definitely always tempers his thrill ride, scary thrill ride with childish wonder. And that's a big part of his movies. And this is definitely... I really feel like the the movie where he stepped into that role as a director. Yeah, I think he really kind of hit his stride. But let me tell you something. Before we jump into this, I think totally, that's a great totally. introduction. But let's catch up, man. I want to hear what you've been up to, man. What's going on? Lately, I just finished issue nine of Infinite Worlds, and it's sent to print now and just waiting for that to come around. Putting together the last of the contributors for Infinite Horrors, number one, the horror-themed spinoff of Infinite Worlds, and that's going pretty well. Oh, I can't um, wait. I guess I can announce it now, It doesn't because this episode won't air, you know, at least won't be live for a little while, maybe a week or two. I got the metal band Pig Destroyer, who I've been a huge fan of forever, to be the interview subject, or one of the interview subjects for issue one, so I'm really excited about that. Big fan of that band. I've never heard of them, dude, and I'm a metal freaking fanatic. What's their genre? Okay, so they didn't really start until the new millennium. Their first album came out in 2001. So like right when I graduated high school. And they're an extreme grind band. Their whole genre is grind, death metal, and thrash. But their specialty is 45 second, minute, 10 second long songs with tons of riffage. 
Oh, wow. That's crazy. And they're real heavy, real extreme, and they have a ton of horror theme stuff. Their first album was called Prowler in the Yard. And when it first came out, the cover art was the gnarliest cover art I've ever seen. It's a picture of some dude hacksawing his own limbs off with all these like limbs and body parts <laughs> laying around the room. Well, that'll be perfect for the magazine, right? For the inaugural issue. <laughs> they've got tons of really great imagery and they've got really cool, like dark poetic lyrics, like lyrics that are really ghastly and stuff, but they're really poetic as well. Plan on digging into that kind of stuff with them during the interview. So oh, that's sick. I can't wait. Looking forward to that. I'm looking to get another interview for the first issue as well. And I've got some good prospects, but I haven't landed anything official yet. So I'm going to keep the lid on that until something's you know official. That's cool. Any trips lately? You gone to the desert? Yeah, what yeah. What have you been doing? Yeah, uh, my wife took me to, uh, or I guess we went together, but she got the Airbnb for us to Moab in Utah, which is about five and a half hours from here in Denver. And we went to the Arches National Park and Canyonlands National Park and spent some time just hanging out in Moab and checking that place out. And that was extremely, extremely awesome. rad. Huh? <laughs> Moab's cool. I've never been there. It's got a real cool, like, outdoorsy small town vibe you know tons of really cool like scenery around the town arches you know where delicate arch is like this really famous monument when you see picture when like they do montages of like america the beautiful and all that stuff there almost always is a shot of delicate arch it was incredible and then canyonlands was also equally mind or maybe even more mind-blowing it's so surreal just, i like it's super surreal. i always think about super going surreal. out there and just freaking doing psychedelics and just like tripping oh, man. on nature right we did not do that this time but you know in the future that is definitely something i would consider <sighs> it's so outstandingly beautiful and like you said surreal it looks like a salvador dolly painting yeah. a lot of the time yeah so it's, it's real trippy real wild it was our fourth and fifth national parks that we visited together we're trying to eventually check off every American national park. You know, that's a bit of a pipe dream because they're like in Alaska and the Virgin Islands and stuff. Well, I mean, so, yeah. the thing is, is if another Republican like Trump is elected, the good thing you can look forward to is they'll probably eliminate Sure, just cut the list down. <laughs> parks and sell it off to corporations. So then you might hit yeah, your goal. Uh, you know, there's always well, this, this is definitely one of the reasons – this is definitely one of the reasons why we're trying to do it because, you know, I love the national parks. I love the national parks program. I'm a big endorser of naturalism. Dude, and that's socialism though, bro. What are you, a communist? <laughs> Come on. Uh, I am definitely not a communist. I get, I, you know, sometimes when I express these kinds of views, people do like, oh, are you a communist? I was like, dude, I own a magazine. I own a small business. It's like the opposite of communism. I was like, I am, I'm a capitalist. You know, I mean, I exist in a capitalist culture and I, you know, have a capitalist endeavor that I, you know, spend all my time working on, but it doesn't mean that I can't like be socially responsible for Pete's sake. Know, that's crazy. You know? huh? Yeah. Just people, people aren't really unbalanced about that stuff. It's, it's, it um, just gets worse every week. It seems like every week I go <laughs> online, I'm like, Oh my gosh, it's getting worse. The dialogue is um, getting just that much dumber. Yeah. I've seen some real dumbed down. But then again, I also see these like pictures people occasionally throw up that are like historical pictures that are people being, super dumb about the same stuff years oh, ago yeah. like i saw one from like a 60s racist counter protest where some dude was holding a sign that said race mixing is communism so i was like oh yeah they they understood it just as poorly <laughs> back then as they We're do now like Germany, they're just it's all the same yeah 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 it's all the same yeah exactly dumb, just dumb what about you, dude? What about you? What about, I uh, hear you're back in the I states am now. back in the states i'm in uh florida it's uh 
I'm, I had such an amazing time in Europe. I mean, it was incredible. You were there for like two or three months. Yeah, yeah it was really cool, man. It was it was rad. I had a I got, I got to like form up with a cool jujitsu tribe, and I, I traveled around Scotland and all that, and gave seminars, and it was cool, man. I had a great freaking time, but I was so out of sorts being away from the beach for so long. You know, I never. Mm-hmm. I yeah. never realized like how much for me, geography and weather is everything, you know? And so, uh, to be back in Florida, you know, how the South is to be I like heat and the humidity. I'm so happy being here, you know, and, and you're like a lizard. And I, uh, and I caught, there was a hurricane that went in the Gulf coast last week. And so yeah. a couple of days ago, we caught just amazing surf. So I'm kind of back in my element. But I'm kind of missing California now. It's starting to like eat away at me. And I'm like, oh, my gosh, I'm, I don't know how much longer I can stay in the south. So we'll just. Well, when the, this time, this time, when you drive back, whenever that ends up happening, you got to come to Denver and we got to record know, a podcast I like know. in person. It'll be like we've been recording podcasts for two years almost now or coming up on it. And we still haven't recorded one in person. So we got it. Well, I don't think, I, I mean, my kind of my plan right now, you know, everything, I keep everything fluid. I don't uh, lock sure, totally. anything, but my plan right now. And the reason I'm staying here is because I'm waiting for all of my, um, all this paperwork, like birth certificates and death certificates and all this craziness from my genealogy, because I want to get uh, citizenship in Italy. And so what right. I'm planning on doing is like in, you know, as soon as I get all this, probably in like eight to 12 weeks, then I'm going to fly to Sicily and move to Sicily and uh, build out a van there and live like in this town called Palermo on this island, which has beaches and it's hot, which is, uh, believe me, I checked that first. But uh, and then get my citizenship and uh, kind of van around Europe. So I don't know if I'm going to be going west. But okay, I, all right. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. Well, we'll see. Maybe, I might have to come to Italy oh. to do the the, the in person podcast. Someone, what a shame! Someone was asking what a shame me. that would be for I me. Know. Someone was asking me. They're like, "Dude, you're moving to Italy. Have you ever been?" I'm like, "Nope," and I don't care because <laughs> I'm just gonna go. And I'll, if I don't like it, I'll come back. You know. So it's. I mean, it's not. You're not giving up your American citizenship or anything, no, right? It'll be no. like a dual, dual no, citizenship. Dual thing. citizenship. So you know, I'm always just nice. looking for the adventure. Nice. Yeah, but that's it. So anyways, on to Close Encounters of the Third Kind, a very, very important movie in uh, in blockbuster history. It was released in 1977. It's kind of uh, crazy to think back, Winston, that this was the same year as Star Wars. This had to be have yeah. you were a sci-fi fan at that point. I can't even imagine what that was like, you know? Okay. So, you know, as always, we'll do a little history lesson about how this worked out. Steven Spielberg's first successful film really was a made-for-TV movie. It doesn't count as a feature film because it was a made-for-TV film, but he directed a film called Duel in 1971 about a maniac truck driver trying to kill some guy on the road, some driver on the road. Great movie, terrific, tense, kind of has a Hitchcockian sort of feel. Awesome movie if you've never seen it, but... I just want to point out that it was written by Richard Matheson, and Richard Matheson is famous for the novel I Am Legend. That's right. And, you know, they had all the I Am Legend and Omega Man films based on that novel. So early on in his career, Spielberg was working with some noteworthy science fiction 
thinkers. Yeah, and you could kind of so see just, like like his whole. That's a good point because his entire roots are really inside of genre, right? Whether it's right. sci-fi or the the Jaws theme, or you know like that mm-hmm. that whole thing. I just thought that was an interesting thing that I think for film history, I thought that was pretty interesting. Obviously, Steven Spielberg became a box office success and a household name a few years before this when he released Jaws, the uh, horror thriller shark film, which I mean, I guess doesn't really need an introduction. And Jaws, which was really Steven Spielberg's first major film. He had made one film before that called Sugarland Express, which did fairly well, not extremely well reviewed, but, you know, made him enough return so that he could have a decent budget for his follow-up, which was Jaws, the next year. And he got a $9 million budget for Jaws, and then it became the biggest blockbuster in history. In 1975, it had a budget of $9 million, and the original release made $260 million, which which at the time is enormous. It's a huge amount of money, you know, and, and people huge like... huge amount of money for return on investment? That's huge. Oh, absolutely. It's, it's, it's insane. It's insane. And, you know, this was a really big step for Hollywood because it changed the summer blockbuster feel. It changed what a summer blockbuster could be. And, you know, it was a real pop culture phenomenon. The theme from Jaws, everybody recognized it immediately. Shark, fear, and mania became a really big deal. You're just talking about surfing in Florida. So, you know, I'm sure... Even today, you know, shark fear is a thing. There actually are occasionally some shark attacks off of the coast of Florida. Dude, I um, think they film part of it right where I am, right here in Pensacola. Is that um, right? Although I don't think there's ever been a great white attack recorded in Florida. No, not. Especially <laughs> not the Gulf of Mexico, but no. Not, yeah, not the Gulf of Mexico. Usually it's like sand tigers or something bull like sharks. that. Bull sharks. Or bull sharks, okay. But again, when I say usually, I mean there's been like – four shark attacks in the past like 10 years or something like that you know what Mm -hmm. i mean so it's not usual at all it's completely unusual but it creates such an aura of fear that it just really captures the imagination of people well i mean that's what's so that's what if you think about it, it what he did he was able to tap into like the the psyche of of America and really the world with these films, because one of them was sharks. I mean, how crazy is that when, you know, so few people live on the coast, but yet right. it exploded. And then he transitioned to the next thing, which is UFOs and alien abductions. And that became this massive, you know what I mean? That's absolutely the talent, right? Steven Spurrock has always had a sense for what people will like. And what people will respond to, you know, and he's definitely, you know, proved that again and again and again with his film career. He's still making movies that get well reviewed and he's in his like 70s now. Okay, so his record for the biggest box office success, the biggest blockbuster in Hollywood history lasted all of two years. Jaws, which came out in 1975, was overtaken by a little film that you guys might have heard of called Star Wars Episode Four: A New Hope, directed by Steven Spielberg's good buddy george lucas and these guys kind of came up in the same era together george lucas and steven spielberg were the new generation of directors in hollywood and they had known each other since the late 60s and they had been pretty good friends and Coppola uh, too, and Coppola friends, as well yeah. yes that was that the new school of directors at the time here in hollywood and okay so i said that jaws was had a budget of nine million and made 260 million on its original release well Star Wars Episode Four: A New Hope had a budget of eleven million 
and made 300 million on its original release, or a little bit more actually. So Lucas outdid Steven Spielberg with his second film as well, because Sugarland Express was really Steven Spielberg's first movie and Jaws was his follow-up. George Lucas had previously released THX 1138, which is also a science fiction film, and it did marginally well as well. You know, it put him on the map, but it wasn't like a big blockbuster success. Then he did American Graffiti, right? Oh, right. That's right. He did do American Graffiti in the middle there, too, which is... And did uh, moderate. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it did, did fairly well. Yeah, and that came out in between there. What's really funny about that is American Graffiti starred... Richard Dreyfus and, um, and Richard Dreyfus, Ron Howard, a number of other people. But Richard Dreyfus starred in both Jaws and Close Encounters of the Third Kind. Okay, so both of these films were being developed at the same time. That is to say, Star Wars and Close Encounters. And the two directors were good friends, and they would occasionally stop in on one another's production to see how they were doing. And right before Star Wars came out, this is a big legend in Hollywood, but it's a true story. Right before uh, Star Wars was released, George Lucas visits the set of Close Encounters and sees one of their sets and is so impressed. And he's so impressed by the dailies that he starts saying to Spielberg, oh, this movie's going to be so much more successful than Star Wars. It's going to be a much bigger success. He's like, I'm really jealous. I really should have gone with something more like what you did because, okay. And I did, I can see that though. Because yeah, Star uh, Wars, you know, so much of it, even I'm sure on the page, didn't work. You know what I mean? Like you're looking at it and mm-hmm. you're going, what? It does what? And and it, you know what I mean? It wasn't until probably everything came together in the very end that it worked. Whereas on paper, uh, Close Encounters is pretty basic in that sense. You know right. what I mean? It's not so fantastical. And Close, and Close Encounters, you know, the, the plot of Close Encounters is based on familiar UFO exactly. lore. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and it's the little gray men and it's uh, UFOs showing up in the sky over small towns. And as we've discussed in a couple of our previous episodes, the X-Files episode and the UFOs episode, that was a big part of popular culture. You know, people understood since Roswell that they were supposed to be on the lookout for flying saucers and little gray men and, you know, aliens making contact with you or abducting you. Dude, and you, and you and, know what's, what's crazy, Winston, is that Spielberg has said at the time that he didn't even consider Close Encounters to be sci-fi. He considered it to be just speculation because and, – and the reason he said that, he goes, I was so into UFOs. I was such a believer that it was real, that we had been visited – that for me, it was just speculating like how this could be the next step. He didn't look, whereas, you know, Star Wars was so fantastic. Here's an interesting story for that. Originally, he wanted to make, I'm going to, I'm going to circle back around to some other points, but I want to go off on a little tangent here. Okay. So originally he wanted to make kind of a docudrama instead, or a documentary style film. Wow. Like found footage or something? Or, 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 yeah, kind of a found, I, I actually don't know exactly how it would have looked, but he had this whole idea of making a, a movie about Project Blue Book and mm. about the government's involvement in the cover-up of UFOs. As, like you said, he was like a believer in that kind of thing at the time. And it eventually came around to a script that was... And you know what? Just to further emphasize that point, he hired, I think his name was Alan Hynek, who worked on Project Blue Book mm-hmm. to, and That's he was right. a consultant it, yeah. for the film. That's how much he he was like, you know, this is real. Originally, one of the first scripts that was presented for this project 
was a script called Watch the Skies. And that was done by Paul Schrader, who wrote Taxi Driver. Oh, no way. Yes. So this film was going to originally, and Watch the Skies was going to be more of a docudrama style thing. So this movie could have been so much different, so much different, instead of kind of like the somewhat lighthearted romp that we ended up with. Uh, it could have been a much more dark, more sinister style film. Taxi Driver had that sort of feel to it, and the Watch the Sky script was more based on government covers-ups of kidnappings. Whoa, like Watergate meets Taxi Driver yeah. <laughs> meets you. Exactly. <laughs> Watergate was still really fresh on people's minds, and the idea that government was corrupt and hiding things from you. Project Blue Book was in the mix. All that was a really hot button topic at the time. And everybody kind of wanted to take advantage of that. But the script they got back wasn't what Spielberg wanted. It was too dark. And so he ended up writing the script himself. So this is one of the few films that Steven Spielberg actually pinned that wasn't based on previously existing source material. You know, he's got screenwriting credits for other projects as well, but this is really the only one of his movies that he wrote the script for based on original. That's crazy. I didn't know that. I'd love to read Uh, that other script. That would be crazy. I think you can find it, although I have not read it myself. I just read some reviews of it or some commentary on the script. They ended up going with this other script, which ended up being Close Encounters, as you know, we know it today. And they went all in on that script and started to work together. He assembled his crew. He rehired Richard Dreyfuss, who campaigned really hard to be in it, as he obviously had worked on Jaws. And Jaws was such a success. And he credited his experience with working with Spielberg as part of it, too. Like, he he saw in Spielberg someone that he desired to work with, and not just because he had made him a household name. Really cool thing, man, where Spielberg was kind of talking about um working uh, casting Dreyfus in the role and it, it was such an important point because you know if you think about like what Spielberg really did in cinema um and it's the one of the first directors that I can point to who fused that those elements of like heavy heavy genre with like insane family drama like very intense oh. family drama right and yes, absolutely. And so when in he talked about casting Dreyfus and he was like, you know, I wanted to have all of the actors except for the military people. I wanted them to really convey and embody like a childlike wonder. And if you look at Richard Dreyfus, he's very like kind of a childlike. He has that childlike face and it just con- it just conveys it where he's like a kid, you know, an adult kid. Uh, so I thought that was that fascinating. Pre- That is fascinating, and it brings me around to uh, that. We could talk more about that casting decision because although Dreyfus was campaigning really heavily to get the role, Spielberg was interested in hiring somebody with a little bit more marquee name and, in fact, auditioned Dustin Hoffman, Al Pacino, Jack Nicholson, Gene Hackman, and James Caan, or at least, you know, approached them. I don't know if they all auditioned. And one of the greatest actors of his era, Steve McQueen, who turned down the role because he couldn't cry on cue. And that was something he thought was necessary for the character. And that's ex- that really goes to your point of having this childlike quality that Richard Dreyfus was able to convey that Steve McQueen never would have been able to convey, at least according to Steve McQueen. So you're absolutely right in saying that. And most of the other people that I mentioned on that thing, except possibly Dustin Hoffman, were really a little bit too like tough guy 
ish for this role. And in the end, I think it's really great that it did go to Dreyfus because I think he really does nail it in this in this. Oh movie. my gosh! Uh, right? Yeah, it's <laughs> such a. It's so cool, man. And it's it's cool that, you know, him, like, you can really see that he set the tone and, and really the, the map for J.J. Abrams. It seems like J.J. Abrams oh. is the, like, I'm going to do everything, <laughs> like, with Spielberg in, in, in the sense that, you know, Close Encounters is a story of a family disintegrating and divorce and parents losing their minds and the kids kind of left to, which is he did it again in ET. And then you see Abrams has done it in so many of his movies like super eight, you know? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. JJ Abrams is absolutely the predecessor or at least one of the predecessors to Spielberg, you know, Spielberg redefined what a blockbuster director should be doing. And there's no question. And he does, he, the, the mix of humor, the mix of terror, the mix of drama, trying to blend all things together. And, you know, he, he's he's definitely a master of that. Okay, I'm going to circle back around to that anecdote about George Lucas visiting the set of Close Encounters. So he comes in, he's so impressed. He says, your movie's going to be so much bigger than mine. I just know it. And this is just weeks before Star Wars opens. And Spielberg says, I'll tell you what, I'll trade you points. I'll take 2.5% of Star Wars and I'll give you 2.5% of Close Encounters. And Lucas took the deal. And so far, that deal has made Steven Spielberg something like $50 million. Are you, you got to be kidding me. I'm he not kidding you. <laughs> on freaking Star Wars. He does. He still has points on, on Star the Wars. original Star Wars movie. <laughs> on the original Star Wars movie. Oh yes. my God, dude. I'm going to tell you, <laughs> I'm, I'm going to go even further than that. Steven Spielberg is such a financial genius. After, oh, no kidding. after his, like he did these blockbusters, I think it was Universal uh, Studios that paid, signed some kind of deal with him to develop like uh, rides for the theme parks that paid him, that pay him 50 million like a year. And I think they still <laughs> continue to pay him that much money. Well, you Every know, his year, jaws were for 30, 40, 50, whatever it is, years. The, the Jaws ride at Universal Studios was like the ride at Universal Studios for like two decades. Yeah. You know if what I mean? Longer, and the, yeah. yeah, if not longer. So they probably, in the end, Universal Studios probably came out on top in that. You know what Jurassic I mean? They're Park like, oh, yeah. Ride, the, e- the Jurassic Park ride was huge. The e. ride. Absolutely. Yeah. Steven Spielberg then watches his blockbuster record go down to his friend Lucas. But it can't it, but, it can't wow. have been a bit it had to be kind of bittersweet because he's like oh for sure a piece of that. <laughs> exactly. And Steven Spielberg would never go on to release a film that was as big a blockbuster success as Star Wars, but it was a really 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 long time before anything outperformed Star Wars at all. You know what yeah. I mean? It was until it wasn't until Titanic came out 20 years later that it was surpassed. So Star Wars is a huge success. And we'll spend some time, a little bit more time talking about Star Wars versus Close Encounters here in a minute. But let's just get through the development of the movie first. Okay, so then Close Encounters comes out and it comes out while Star Wars is still in theaters. You know, it's been a couple of months, but Star Wars was such a success that it stayed in theaters. And despite everything, despite how different it was than Star Wars, like we said before, not as space fantasy, definitely grounded more in everyday life. It was a lot more relatable to a lot of people. It still performed really well. It wasn't as big a hit as Jaws, but it had a budget of 30 million, 20 million 
and it made $116 million originally. So, you know, it's six times its budget. Eventually, it made like $300 million on re-releases and everything as well. So it was still a really big success. And of that money, George Lucas got 2.5%, but Spielberg was getting 2.5% of Star Wars at the same time. So, okay. One of the, I think, big reasons that Close Encounters was a success was because of the special effects. And wouldn't you know it, good old Douglas Trumbull, who had done 2001 A Space Odyssey and a number of other films, who we've talked about many times in the past, was the visual effects coordinator for this film as well. If you guys haven't seen Close Encounters lately, it's worth a revisit in terms of 1970s visual effects. We've talked about this before, and I still believe it, that 2001 really is the standard bearer for ahead of their time visual effects. But there are some really cool things in Close Encounters. The clouds forming in the sky upon the I could not, as I was watching it, I rewound that a few times. I could not figure out how they did that. I'm like, how is that not CGI? I mean, obviously, they're using some kind of macro lenses, and, and that's actual clouds. It's actually what they did was, is they, Doug Trumbull created this effect, like so many other amazing effects by floating salt water on top of regular water and then using a air hose to pump paint into the water. That's so, so rad. Oh my God. So what you're seeing is paint cloud in dense water, but it looks exactly like clouds in the sky. It was so freaking cool. It really was cool. Uh, and okay, so you know we talk a lot about practical effects versus digital effects, and this movie came out right when CGI was in its infancy, and there was talks. Spielberg actually had test effects created through CGI to see if they would work in the film, and he ended up rejecting all of them. He ended up saying that none of them looked convincing enough, so he didn't put them in the movie. But this is one of the first movies where test CGI was made at all, period, in any movie. And it just wasn't up to snuff, and they ended up using this already established practical effects genius to do the deal. And and, and looking, great looking back, I mean, clearly, you know, J.J. Abrams, when he took over Star Wars, he was like, we're going back to practical effects. You know what I mean? Because if you if you look at even CGI in two, the two, what was it, late 90s, with uh, Phantom Menace and all that, it doesn't. You can't. Mm-hmm. I, I can. I find it to be unwatchable. How, how it's, bad it's the horrible. effects are? It's, it, yeah, it's terrible. It's terrible. And Lucas embraced that. You know what I mean? He he wasn't given the option because the budget for Star Wars was only about half the budget for Close Encounters. So he he was never like uh, CGI wasn't even considered for that film yeah. it, for the, thank for the goodness. best, you know, thank goodness. Yeah. Thank goodness. <laughs> Absolutely. But you know, when he made his re-release a couple, like, you know, what was it like 93 or something when they did the VHS re-releases, yeah. he added a bunch of CGI into those as well, yeah. including scenes with did, Jabba the Hutt yeah. and several and others. It's terrible. And it's so bad. Yeah. It's so terrible. Yeah. And then he made the prequels, heavy on cgi yeah i mean those whole things are green screen and they're they're the worst 
They're so bad. Here we are, twenty something episodes later, still talking shit on the <laughs> prequels. But no, but I think but I think you're bringing up a good point because if if you think about it, if they tried to do the cloud sequence at CGI back in '77 mm-hmm. or '76 when they were in production, <laughs> versus how bad they were still twenty, thirty years later. I mean, yep. it, it, clearly, you know, practical effects are are just the, where you can do them. It just holds up. I love it. It doesn't seem to lose its luster the way digital effects do. No. You know what I mean? The Uncanny Valley is so much more wide with digital effects. But you know what's um, kind of crazy too is that you talk, you're kind of hinting at this like incestuous family that work on all these films. How about John Williams doing the film score? That did Star yeah, Wars, it, you know? He did Star Wars and he did Jaws. Yeah, you know? Yeah. Um, that dude. Okay, so he's done most of Spielberg's films. I don't want to say he's done all of Spielberg's films, but he's certainly done quite a few of them, the vast majority of them, and all the Star Wars films as well. John Williams, I think, plays a big part in the mood. We talked about the things that were very successful in Close Encounters. We talked about the visual effects in Doug Trumbull. We talked about Richard Dreyfus and generally the cast being very relatable and, you know, familiar to an audience and way less fantastic. You know, they just seemed like a suburban family. Yeah. All right. Well, one, one, one more uh, thing I'm going to bring up. I'm a, I'm, okay. As a photographer and someone who's done a lot of filming, I'm absolutely like fascinated when I watch any movie with cinematography. And I love how when I was watching the film, I'm like, this is such a perfect example of that like golden era, 70s, almost kind of 60s. Um, like cinematography where just wide angles, everything's like kind of mm-hmm. golden. It's beautiful. It's like everything kind of wor- the film score works like that old school kind of a film. The look of it is like that instead of in the cuts and the editing or the more slow cuts, it's just such a great example. And I forgot about that until I watched it and going back and watching it. I was like, man, this is such a cool example of that type of filmmaking. Well, a lot of that is due to the fact that, you know, these guys, this new school of film directors, including Spielberg, were such devotees to golden area Hollywood style films. That actually leads me to another point is that one of the most interesting casting choices we were just talking about the cast is that the French UFO special researcher in the film is played by Francois Truffaut. And Truffaut was a legendary French director. And he had made films like The 400 Blows and several others. And Spielberg was a huge fan. And Francois Truffaut only appeared as an actor in one film in his entire career that he didn't direct. He appeared as an actor in lots of films that he directed himself. But Close Encounters was the only film that he appeared in as an actor that he didn't direct himself. That's so crazy. You know what's cra- you know what else is crazy is that Spielberg was such a fan of his that he was nervous to even approach him to ask him <laughs> and like put right. it off forever and while he was auditioning all these other actors and finally got it up the courage and, and approached him. I was like, I know you've never acted, you know, in outside of one of your own films, but that dude was amazing. Yeah, he's excellent in the movie. He's a terrific actor in the film, but he barely spoke any English at all. And he had to audition his English lines and they had to stick cue cards in places so that he could remember his English lines as well, because he didn't speak English fluently at all. But he's still, he's terrific in the film. And he's paired with Bob Balaban, who is a really underrated actor who appears in a bunch of Christopher Guest movies as well. And they make a really terrific team as well. He plays like the 
the translator. I thought researcher. those two guys were so good together. They were so oh, good. Yeah. They both had like really good chemistry. That's another thing I kind of wanted to mention is how you see elements. Okay, so the, the first scene of Close Encounters is about Bob Balaban, who's this re- UFO researcher who can speak English and French, being brought to this site so that he could translate for the French researchers. And when he gets there, they discover that all of these airplanes from different eras have been found parked there like brand new. And to me, this really sets the stage for some projects that Spielberg would do later on, most notably the Amazing Stories film, because it just seems like such an Amazing Stories plot. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. And, you know, you can tell that the Amazing Stories magazine and Twilight Zone and all that stuff was a huge, I mean, he also directed a Twilight Zone film as well, were such a huge influence on Spielberg growing up. Well, I mean, this is um, all, that's all playing on more like conspiracy cult type of a thing with the Bermuda Triangle, right? Like these right, things disappear absolutely. and all of a sudden they just appear like 40, 50 years later. And, and right. you're like, what in the world? Yeah, you're right. You know, when you first see that, it's such a cool idea. You're like, oh, we're in for a journey here. It's really funny that that part, that's the beginning of the movie, and they never really revisit that. I will say that this movie, I love this movie. It's very influential, too. I think it's really important that we discuss it, especially since I really want to introduce Spielberg as a science fiction director into the kind of podcast conversation, because he ended up over the course of his career directing so many excellent science fiction films but you know this is really his first go at it you know when you think about like spielberg writing the writing the the script um i i heard this interview where he was talking about how he started with the end scene you know with that end scene and what was going to happen mm. and how the you know spoiler how the aliens were going to finally come out and the symphony of music and light and everything um but it's kind of crazy that, you know, he he got that first and then kind of went backwards. Right. I mean, what, what yeah. it's it, for me, as I watched it, I kind of felt in ways like it was a little disjointed at parts. I was like, OK, Absolutely. we're going from like major sequences that deal with one thing to another thing. And, you know what I mean? It just felt a little disjointed. But but when what. I really found interesting was that he said when he was filming the uh, the last scene and writing it, he was like, oh, my gosh, what if one of these aliens stayed behind? And he even thought about maybe I should just change the whole movie and it should be about that one alien that got left behind. And you know what that became, right? Because you're talking about oh, other yeah. science fiction movies. Oh, yes. This was the early – the seeds – of another gigantic science fiction blockbuster by Steven Spielberg, E.T., The Extraterrestrial, which came out about five or six years later. Uh, Wild. Possibly, which I mean, I would say it was a bigger cultural phenomenon than this movie was, or probably almost as big a cultural phenomenon, if not on the same level as Jaws. You know, I, I um, think it was one of the biggest movies ever in the whole, in the entire I, '80s. I mean, it changed everything. It was like it was yeah. like Michael Jackson. You know what I mean? It was just so. I remember it was so freaking big. It was like Star Wars big. I think the only you know the, the the Star Wars you have to keep in mind was a franchise where these other movies were massive without being a franchise. You know right, what I mean? Just one off films that had all this cultural impact. And it's just there's no sequel to E.T. There's no sequel to Close Encounters. And, uh, you know, that 
says a lot. You know, that's a meaningful thought. The fact that these things are just self-contained stories, they don't turn into cash cows, yeah. which is something that, you know, has been a criticism of ours of Star Wars since we started this podcast. Yeah. And when, when um, something is a franchise, you know, it gains momentum over decades and, you know, no matter what it is, you know, Terminator or whatever it is, and they gain, they actually gain momentum and companies that are making money off of them, like toys and all that, they start spending more money on marketing and they build that audience over the length of the films. These are, like you're saying, one-off films who, that achieve this. Speaking of E.T., another element of Spielberg films that I really wanted to touch on that you could see very present in this movie is, you also already touched on it, is that chaotic family life the around the dinner table everybody's talking over one another and stuff's being thrown around the home is not leave it to beaver clean or i love lucy clean you know it's messy and lived in and i think that's a real element of spielberg films that you again you see in et you see in it really reminded me of poltergeist quite a bit which steven spielberg didn't officially direct poltergeist but it's my belief that he did. Toby Hooper, who Texas Chainsaw Massacre is officially credited with directing that movie, and Spielberg's the producer. But, you know, a lot of anecdotes say that Spielberg basically was over Hooper's shoulder the whole time directing the director. Wow, that's heavy. Um, well, I think I think that uh, that Spielberg has talked at length about how, you know, his parents' divorce has really informed you know, his view on a lot of these movies. I mean, even on E.T., you had that that family falling apart. You had in E.T., you had the mm -hmm. divorced mom. Right. And the, mm -hmm. the the dad's off in Mexico with his new girlfriend. And it's just devastating for the kids. And this is the same thing. Dude, how about the fact that the dad in this Dreyfus actually just kind of abandons the family? You know what I mean? Oh, man. He it just leaves and he's making out with the other chick you know, on the mountain as they're with the UFO. I mean, it's kind well, it's, of crazy. One of the things is that he experiences, the, the character experiences this sort of like transcendent realization that the place and time that he's in is not where he's supposed to be, that he's being called and the aliens want him specifically. You know, at the end of the film, he arrives at Devil's Tower at, when the mothership shows up and the aliens come out and the U.S. government has gotten all of these highly trained astronauts lined up to go with the aliens and they walk right by all of them and take only Richard Dreyfus on board the ship. The indication is that they wanted him and that he was sort of destined for this. Why and you know what purpose? It's not explained. It's something that I guess the audience are supposed to think that the aliens know better than we do and that's why he behaves this way. But Andrew, our producer, wanted me to make this point. He's a dad. You're a dad. That Spielberg later on has said that if he could change anything about this film, he would have Richard Dreyfuss refuse to go because Spielberg then later became a father himself. And he then was unable to imagine leaving his kids to go on the UFO. Yeah. So that's uh, heavy. So he had a greet. He had a Greedo moment. Like, what yeah. Lucas? he's like, yeah, I'm going to change it. He's not going to shoot. Uh, Han's not going to shoot him first. <laughs> well, he, he never made a cut where that happened. No, you know, know, even though he did make several cuts of the movie, you know, after the movie was finished, Spielberg was sort of unhappy with the way it ended up. So he made a director's cut of the film. And then later was like, I didn't really need to make a director's cut. It was fine how it was. Well, what you know what, what I mean? happened he, was Columbia, the film studio, was on the verge of bankruptcy as the film was getting wrapped up. 
and they forced him to finish it like a month and a half early. And so he was like, I never got to get the edit that I wanted to get. And so a few years later, they came to him and they're like, listen, we'll let you do the director's cut in exchange for, and I don't know which version you saw, but the in the original version, that big container ship that was in the desert, that yes. wasn't in there. They didn't film that. So they went back and with the crew and, and the cast and they filmed that. Very interesting. Yeah, and they filmed that. And you know what the, the, um, the exchange was? They said, we will give you the money to get the cut that you want and to film some new things, but you have to show the inside of the spaceship with Richard Dreyfuss. Ah. And so they went back and they filmed that. And Spielberg was upset. He was like, I never thought that the inside of the spaceship, that should, he said, he always thought that that should be like part of your imagination and we should never see it. But he's like, in exchange, he's like, I finally got the cut that I wanted and I could spend the time and cut it down and reshape the story and film that container ship. But then what happened was he got the ability to go ahead and do his final cut where he kept everything from that second cut, but he cut out the interior scene of the spaceship. And if you go on YouTube, you can see the inside of the spaceship and it's really underwhelming. So they probably shouldn't have shown, they shouldn't have shown it. <laughs> yeah, but there were, that's why there are three cuts of the film. The one I saw was the final cut, the special edition. I think yeah, it's yeah, called. yeah. Me too. Me too. Uh, but I went on YouTube and watched the end. The interior, and I was like, yeah, that kind of sucks. I have no idea what version we owned when I was growing up, but I'm guessing it was probably the theatrical version. We uh, had it too, and on VHS, and I'm sure it was the same yeah. thing. Yeah, for sure. So this this movie really launched the science fiction career of Spielberg. Spielberg's known for making all kinds of movies, you know, movies about war. He's made a number of really intriguing war movies, movies about all sorts of stuff. But he keeps coming back to science fiction, again, because... He was raised on these classic TV shows, you know, which was made obvious when he made the Amazing Stories movie, when he made part of the Twilight Zone movie. He made AI. Well, he took over AI for Kubrick. Yeah, Kubrick, okay. who was making it when he died. Jurassic Park is a science fiction. And he made two of those. Minority Report, based oh, on the Philip yeah. K. Dick story, which is excellent. I, I think one of the better Philip K. Dick movies, in my opinion. His version of War of the Worlds is pretty good. When we did our War of the Worlds episode quite a while ago, I can't remember what I said about it, but my feeling has always been that that's a pretty good version of the movie. It's not perfect, but it deals intensely with parents going through a divorce. Yeah, and very gritty, you know? too. Uh, Those two movies, yeah. Minority Report and uh, War of the Worlds, are really gritty, so different in Absolutely. every sense, tonally from um from this movie they're less fun that's for sure less funny yeah. although there's still a few funny scenes at least in minority report less so in war of the worlds but in minority report there are yeah and he also made uh the ready player one film which was pretty good leans very heavily on cgi i mean cgi has come around to a point now where spielberg has kind of embraced it a little bit more but, yeah, uh, I mean, you had to do CGI with Ready Player One because the whole thing is inside of a simulation. Yeah. So, yeah, I read the book and I watched it right after it came out, and I liked it all right. I thought it, I but thought then it I watched was great it. In, popcorn. The book is awesome, mm -hmm. and the the movie is actually kind of awesome. They changed a few things, and it, like it kind of bothered me, or he changed a few things. It kind of bothered me the first time I watched it, but I watched it again not too long ago, and was like, you know what? I was a little uh, judgy of this. This is actually this is actually. I great. like the Shining sequence. Believe it or not, I was like, oh, yeah. yeah, I was like, this is a, such a change from the book 
But, you know, I get it. And it was fun. It was playing. He did the same thing, giving homage to that era of, you know, the 80s, like pop culture. So mm-hmm. it was cool. Well, the Devil's Tower, which is the natural monument where the climax of Close Encounters takes place, is in Wyoming. It's only about six hours from where I live. So Dude, you gotta uh, I go think, see that. Doesn't it seem like a worthwhile pilgrimage yes, for six <laughs> hours? <laughs> Yeah, my wife and I watched the film together recently. To- I think their location scout said that uh, he had shown him so many different freaking places. And once the location scout saw Devil's Tower, he's like, that's it. That is 100% it. And Spielberg was like, yeah, for sure. It is a really strange looking natural formation. There are lots of shots of it in the film. And every time I see a shot of it in the film, and I was like, is that a model? I know. And then I'm like, no, it's not. That's the real thing. It just really looks that crazy. Yeah, very cool. Okay, so I think uh, unless you have any other points. I I have big time. Okay. Okay, great. Let's go. We're we're going to wrap this up with a rad conspiracy theory. Okay. Oh, I love it. Yes. Yes. (laughs) So there is this conspiracy theory out there. There's even a book written about the Serpo exchange program. Okay. Have you ever heard of it? And they said that this is what this movie is based on. That after the 1947 Roswell crash, four of the aliens died, but one survived. Okay. That alien, they called him EB1. He learned Mm -hmm. English. And he told oh, them boy. that he was from the planet Serpo, which was Serpo. 40 light years away. Okay. And so okay. remember, this is 1947 that the Roswell crash happened. So right. he used the wreckage to contact Serpo because I guess they had a radio transmitter on there. And right. before they received anything back or anything happened, EB1 died in 1952. Mm. Finally, though, The aliens from Serpo contacted the United States government. Okay. Oh, wow. And in 1964, two spaceships landed and they picked up the wreckage. A year later, in 1965, the aliens came back and they did an exchange program. They took 10 men and two women. They took them to Serpo and they left another alien on Earth. Wow. Yep. And so this, <laughs> these 12 people, they went to this planet. I think it took them like 10 months or something. They went, must have went through a wormhole, right? Or, or they had a faster than light travel somehow. Something, right? I'm sure in the book that it's explained in there. Anyways, okay. on the planet Serpo, there were 650,000 citizens, right, of this, uh, okay. the, these aliens. And there were no other species. They stayed there for, I think, a year or two. And two of the members liked it so much that they stayed, but the rest returned. Okay. And they were debriefed and there was a 3000 page report that was written, but there's been no contact with the Serpos or whatever you call them since 1985. But they claim people that believe this conspiracy theory, that that is what Close Encounters is based on. So if anybody's curious about it, look up the Serpo report and check out the book. Definitely believable that it is based on that because like we said at the at the beginning of this episode, Spielberg was really interested in that kind of conspiracy theory. Yeah, and, and I remember the, the consultant for the movie worked on Project Blue Book and Spielberg talked about how this guy would debunk UFO sightings. But the guy told him, he goes, dude, 10% of them, like 90% were nonsense. He said 10% were so compelling in the eyewitnesses, everything that they collected, that the guy finally just quit 
the project blue book and became a consultant and went on and wrote a book about it. So that's Dr. J. Allen Hynek. Hynek, I wish we could end every episode with a conspiracy. (laughs) I know. I know. know. We got to Okay. I think of it's kind of our duty. I really, dude, I really kind of feel this way. I, I, I talked about it last time. I'm so like kind of bitter. The fact that conspiracy theorists are kind of just ruining everything, in my opinion. Yeah, they're, conspiracy theorists are ruining conspiracy theories. Right? You kind of feel like, yeah. dude, I can't even believe in conspiracy theories anymore. Because if I do, yeah, I'm going to be freaking te- <laughs> lumped in with you. You know, know. it's not real. You know? <laughs> oh, gosh. You know, Hynek in his book has said that 11% of the study's findings about UFOs could not be explained using science. That's a lot. That One in lot. 10 yeah. encounter can't be explained. That does leave a, a wide berth for conspiracy theories to form. I you know what it. I mean? I love it. Um, Let's reclaim them. So this was an awesome episode. I Guys, if you haven't seen Close Encounters lately, give it a whirl. It's not a super long movie. It's real entertaining. I think it definitely holds up, but it definitely primes the pump for Spielberg as a director and you know, the modern blockbuster. So I think it's worthy of talking about. And I think Nick and I talked about for our next episode, switching to another major blockbuster director who we mentioned very briefly earlier in the episode. If you're still down for it, I think we're going to do the Terminator franchise. Dude, I'm so down for it that I've been watching Terminator, like the different iterations <laughs> every night this week. I am so excellent, pumped, man. Let's record that this I've week. Got, yeah, I'm pumped. Let's maybe try to do it on Friday if we can. All right. If we can, just a few more days. Yeah, I'd love to. Big fan of the franchise. Absolutely. Especially the first two films. It definitely goes off the rails after Cameron stops making the films himself. But James Cameron's original vision is really hard to top. Talk about pop culture phenomenon. Based on sci-fi, which is so rad. uh, That's going to be a really fun episode, too. So look forward to that one next. All right, man. That was awesome, brother. See you next time. Guys, if you're enjoying the Infinite Worlds podcast, you could definitely check out more Infinite Worlds related stuff by visiting our website, infiniteworldsmagazine.com. There you can subscribe to Infinite Worlds magazine. It's a full-color, ad-free science fiction magazine featuring stories, comics, and illustrations from creators all over the world. You can also sign up to our mailing list. You can follow us on Instagram at Infinite Worlds Magazine or on Twitter at IWSciFiMag. Also, you can find Nick the Tooth on Instagram at Nick the Tooth and follow his wild escapades. Theme song was written by Christopher Whitaker. And our podcast is produced by Andrew Alonzo. Thank you.